Welcome to the Race Through Space Read Along Podcast, written and hosted by David Hoff. Welcome to the first episode of the Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast. I am David Hawk, the author of Race Through Space, which is published by books to go now and now available on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com in paperback, ebook, and as an audiobook on Audible. I was born and raised in Colorado. I am an author, a podcaster, and a producer. I have always loved to write, but it wasn't until recently that I became a published author, even though it has always been my dream to be a writer. The reason that I'm able to pursue my dreams is because of the race through space. So what is a read-along podcast? Every week I will be reading a few chapters of my series while also talking about the inspirations behind those chapters as well as giving more insight into the building of my race through space universe. Today I will be reading chapters 1 through 4 of the race through space trilogy and I will be talking about how I came up with the race through space story and my journey to get it published and also what the future holds for the series. So, let's begin. The first thing I need to do is tell you about how I came up with the idea of Race Through Space. I'm an enormous science enthusiast, especially when it comes to space science. I devour and learn as much about space as I possibly can. It wasn't until the last 10 years that space science has become cool. One of the craziest theories from Albert Einstein was that there were tunnels that could connect one side of the universe to the other almost instantaneously. You'd be able to do so because of bridges of space and time called Einstein-Rosen bridges, more commonly known as wormholes. The idea of using them to travel at will across the universe took hold, and it was the first idea that I became obsessed with. I needed to come up with an idea, and I needed to plot out my story. I needed to find a purpose for the story. Why is my main character using wormholes to travel across the universe? Is it set in present day, or is it going to be set in the future? And what is going to be the element of danger? The reason I didn't start writing earlier was because I had no clear vision. Then, something amazing happened. I was thinking of what to call the book, if I were ever to write it. The first thought in my head was to call it Race Through Space. The title itself was full of action, and it could capture a reader. It also gave my story a much-needed direction. There had to be a race involved, or a chase. An idea began to form. My main character was being chased because he had created these wormholes and someone was after his technology. His race was his race for survival. I was pretty set on that idea, but there was something missing. It wasn't until I watched Flight of the Navigator with my young son that I understood what my idea lacked. It lacked heart, and it lacked adventure. I grew up in the 1980s with movies like The Goonies, Flight of the Navigator, and The Explorers. Adventure movies for kids. That was the moment that everything came into focus for me. This needed to be an adventure story, and it needed to be for kids. That meant I needed a kid as my main character, and it was him using the wormholes to find his father. At the same time I was coming up with the story, I had returned to school in order to become a science teacher. I wanted to teach the generation that will be the ones to put feet down on Mars. The science teacher thing didn't work out too well, but it gave me an idea. I want to use my story to teach about all the cool stuff that's out there in space. More so, I wanted to introduce them to real scientists that study the universe.
I knew that I wanted to incorporate as much true science and common theories into the story as possible. Also, I wanted to name all of my characters, even the aliens, after scientists. Most importantly, my main character was named after my favorite scientist and idol, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I had all the pieces in place. Now, all I had to do was write the story. For someone that has never written a book, that seemed to be an insurmountable obstacle. And next week, I will tell you how my love of podcasts gave me the confidence to write my book. When I say that I've been thinking about the race through space for over a decade, I truly mean it. The story has taken on many different forms over the years. It's gone from a story of a man trying to save his own life by going through wormholes and visiting different aliens. And there would be a protagonist chasing him all across the universe. But as the years went on and I got to really build a relationship with my son who is very, very bright and really into science as well. Um, I began to use him as an inspiration for my character. And it really was that connection that we shared while we were watching one of my favorite adventure movies that the, the story really came into focus. I wanted the story to be for kids. I wanted to inspire kids' imagination. I also wanted them to have a sense of wonder about the space and everything that lies within the universe. This is my love story to science and to the scientists that have expanded our understanding of the universe. And this is also a legacy that I'm leaving for my son. My son is every bit Neil. Uh, Neil is a a very bright young man who uses logic and is not confident about himself, but he's very, very smart. And as the series goes on, he builds that confidence in himself And he finds out that being smart is not actually something to be ashamed of, but something to embrace. And I've already discussed how the movies of the 1980s helped inspire the Race Through Space story. But also, I was inspired by the music of the 1980s as well. My sister is seven years older than I am, and when I was growing up in the 1980s, she was listening to bands such as The Cure, Depeche Mode, The Human League, and other bands such as that. And when I think about the 80s, I really fell in love with the music. And you will see throughout my entire Race to Space story that the kids that are the main characters in my Race to Space story are also, just like my son is now, really into 1980s music and really get inspired by it. So, without further ado, chapters 1 through 4 of the Race to Space. Chapter 1. She blinded me with science. Science! shouted Thomas Dolby in his classic song, She Blinded Me with Science. The song blared out of Neil's smartphone on the table next to his bed. He poked his hand out from underneath his rocket ship pattern comforter and turned off his alarm. Then he slowly sat up straight. He threw back the covers, jumped out of bed, and changed from his NASA pajamas to his black SpaceX t-shirt and a pair of jorts. After several minutes... Neil bounded down the stairs and turned towards the kitchen. He rounded the staircase and saw his mother cooking eggs. She wore a gray sweatshirt that read High Plains Storm Chasers. She turned towards him. Good morning. You're up early, she said with a spatula in her hand. Yeah, I'm really excited about today. I need to pick up Marie before we go to the museum, Neil said. Are you all packed up for tonight? His mother asked. Yeah, I can't wait. 
The first day of summer vacation was always a treasured one for Neil. That's when he and his father took their annual camping trip. The two of them would go to a quiet lake near their home in the heart of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. He loved to camp and fish, but the highlight of the trip was when his father brought out his high-tech telescope. The two of them would spend hours a night looking at the stars, planets, and galaxies that populated the night sky. Anyway, love, I have some errands to run in Denver today, his mom said. Aim and not see you before you guys leave. Have so much fun and stay near your dad. There are a lot of hungry bears out there. Neil left the house and biked through town on his way to meet his best friend Marie, who lived with her mother on the opposite side of town in their tidy double-wide trailer. When he got there, Marie was standing impatiently next to her bike, wearing a green hoodie that read Mysteries of the Universe written across the chest. Chapter 1 is my introduction into the inspirations behind the Race to Space story. Uh, right off the bat, I go through She Blinded Me with Science, one of my favorite all-time 1980s songs that also just happened to work perfectly with the story. Uh, the other one is Space Science. Um, I really wanted to uh, get kids interested in uh, looking into telescopes and looking into the night sky and looking for planets and stars and the galaxies that populate the night sky. But one of my greatest inspirations to the entire story is my love of Colorado. Uh, the fictional town of Mountain View, Colorado is actually an amalgamation of Granby, Colorado, where I have a lot of family that lives there, um, a town called Winter Park, Fraser, Colorado, and also a little bit of Glenwood Springs. But I really wanted to bring my love of Colorado, especially our Rocky Mountains, and uh, make that a true focal point in the entire story. And I really think I do it justice, because there's nothing more beautiful than the Colorado Rocky Mountains. When I was coming up with the story, I knew it just couldn't be Neil by himself. I needed him to have a partner. And most of these sci-fi stories that I grew up watching, such as The Goonies and such as Fly the Navigator, and you'll hear me talking about those movies quite a bit as I go through this series. But they always had groups of friends. And it was always basically four kids that were together. I know in the Goonies there's four kids and there was a bunch of other kids. But it, ultimately the, the group main group was four kids. So I knew I didn't want to have a group of kids on the story. Because I wanted this to be a more intimate type of science fiction story. However, I did need to have somebody that Neil could bounce ideas off of, somebody who could help him calm down, and also somebody who would build up his confidence when he was at his lowest. Uh, not only that, I needed somebody uh, who was different than him. I couldn't have just two uh, kids that are about 12 years old going through space because that's not a, an interesting story. So I wanted to have... Uh, an African-American girl as his best friend. I named her Marie after Marie Curie. More importantly, I wanted Marie to be every bit as intelligent as Neil. They may come from different backgrounds, but intelligence doesn't care if you are white or African-American, Asian, Hispanic, and it doesn't matter what your background is. Smart is smart. Chapter 2 Neil and Marie had set their sights on this day months ago the day that their hero, Dr. William Lowell, would premiere his new planetarium show at the Mountain View Earth and Space Museum. Neil loved him because he loved learning about space. Marie adored him because he was an African-American and a nerd, just like she was. 
Dr. Lowell was the most famous scientist on Earth. His show, Mysteries of the Universe, was a smash hit and his books were top sellers. He was also an old friend and classmate of Neil's father who ran the museum. If it wasn't for his dad's words of encouragement, Dr. Lowell would be making lattes at a Starbucks somewhere. Years later, when Neil's dad reached out for help, Dr. Lowell gave him a helping hand. Several years ago, Neil's dad had self-published a book where he claimed he not only proved the existence of wormholes, which are bridges that connect the vast distances in space, but he stabilized them and used them to visit alien worlds across the universe. The most fantastic claim was that he lived with and studied several different alien civilizations. He claimed to have spent most of those years living amongst the population of an ape-like species called the Waichu, who lived on a jungle world named Simia. Neil's dad also claimed that the Waichu had built massive cities of silver in the jungle canopy of their world, and their cities were supported by enormous trees. The Waichu were the most advanced species on Simia, but they were not the only ones. Simia had four distinct species, and each one was on a different rung of the evolutionary ladder. The Waichu had colonized the jungle canopy. A civilization named the Trian built vast cities just under the Simian surface, and, on, and the Ison lived in the mountains. The least evolved of the intelligent species on Simia was also the most feared. They were the Daro, a species that splintered from the Trian thousands of years ago and were banished to the dark interiors of the jungle. The only reason the other Simian civilizations managed to flourish was because the Daro were highly sensitive to sunlight. Massive light arrays called starlights were built thousands of years ago to protect the great Simian cities and resources from the Daro. Neil's dad spent many years living with the Waichu as the guest of one of their leaders, a creature named Yima, and developed sophisticated software that translated the Simian language in real time. That enabled him to learn all he could about Simia in its history. He also lived with the Trian for several months before leaving Simia on his quest to visit other worlds. In all, Neil's dad claimed to have visited five different worlds strewn throughout the universe. The final planet he visited was a hyper-advanced world called Varalam. It was home to a race of beings millions of years old called the Teva. They were the beings that created the wormholes that Neil's dad used to traverse the universe. Their knowledge of physics was so advanced that they could manipulate space and time in order to visit any of the trillions of planets throughout the universe. Because wormholes were bridges through space and time, Neil's dad discovered that when he returned from his extended excursions, only seconds had elapsed on Earth. Nobody believed his story. After hearing the story directly from his friend, Dr. Lowell couldn't believe it. His brain told him that it was great work of sci-fi, but his gut... His gut told him that everything his old friend claimed was absolutely true. The two men agreed to stay in contact, and one day, Dr. Lowell would visit sleepy little Mountain View and see the wormhole device for himself. Two years passed, and Dr. Lowell's fame continued to grow. The men eventually lost touch until Neil's dad received a message from Verulam. The Tiva had observed a quasar erupting from a pair of colliding black holes, and it was heading directly towards their solar system. Their world would be annihilated. The Tiva could escape using their own wormholes, but instead they had chosen to spend the remainder of their existence dispersing their millions of years of accumulated knowledge to the worthiest of beings. They had invited Neil's dad to come to Verulam to receive their knowledge. Stephen called Dr. Lowell, and they came up with an ingenious idea. Dr. Lowell would come to Mountain View to premiere his new planetarium show at Stephen's museum. They would leave in the middle of the show and run to Stephen's office. 
There they would travel through the wormhole to Verilem and return with the information. When they arrived back on Earth, only a few seconds would have elapsed and they would return to the show before it was over. Steven pre-recorded several messages that would automatically be sent to his family in case of an emergency. In this chapter, I really wanted to set up what the history of the wormholes is. Wormholes play an integral part in the entire series, but I needed to, one, establish Neil's relationship with his father, and also his father's relationship with Dr. Lowell. Originally, Dr. Lowell was going to be the protagonist of the Race to Space. He was going to be a scientist who would pull out every stop to make sure that he continued to be the most famous scientist in the world. And even if that meant chasing his old college friend across the universe to steal his technology. But as it continued to write the story as Dr. Lowell's the protagonist, the story seemed to get bogged down in me trying to rescue Steven and him traveling through the universe by himself. The, really, the story didn't make sense when Dr. Lowell was trying to chase him. So instead, I really wanted to make a, a more positive story, and so I wanted to have Dr. Lowell actually be a friend of Neil's father and have them travel to Verlam together. When I thought of the character of Dr. Lowell, the only person that ever came to mind, and every time I write the story, it's always Donald Glover as Dr. Lowell. So... My hope and dream is that if this is ever made into a movie or a series, that Dr. Lowell would be played by Donald Glover. In this chapter, I also established that Neil's father actually is the curator and director of a space and science museum in Little Mountain View, Colorado. Although no museum like that truly exists up in the mountains, there's a ton of museums up there. Um, but for the purposes of the story, I actually had to invent this little museum because there would be no other reason to have a planetarium show if there was no space museum up there. Chapter 3 As Stephen recorded his messages, Neil and Marie arrived at the museum. Dr. Lowell's visit to Mountain View was the biggest event to happen in the town ever. Neil and Marie took their seats just as the lights dimmed and a spotlight illuminated his father at the front of the audience. The crowd roared in excitement. Welcome to beautiful Mountain View, Colorado, and to our gorgeous museum, Neil's dad said, and was greeted by a loud round of applause. We are very honored to welcome America's favorite scientist as he presents his newest, most technologically advanced planetarium experience, Mysteries of the Universe, Exoplanets. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dr. William Lowell. The crowd erupted in cheers and applause. There were some hoots and hollers peppered throughout the auditorium. Dr. Lowell ran down the steps, shaking hands with adults and fist-bumping kids. He was an African-American man in his late 30s, with dark hair and a puffy beard. He wore a black t-shirt resembling the Wu-Tang logo, but it said Hawking instead. He took his spot at the front of the planetarium, standing next to Neil's dad. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're too kind. Please take your seats. Dr. Lowell said as he pointed and waved to various members of the audience. First, I want to thank you, my dear friend, Dr. Steve Webb, for inviting me to his beautiful museum in one of the most beautiful places on Earth. There was another loud round of cheers and applause. In 2009, NASA launched a revolutionary telescope into space. It was called the Kepler Space Telescope, and its mission was to find new planets in outer space. To date, the telescope has found thousands of alien planets, 
My friend Stephen and I even found a few of them ourselves, Dr. Laurel said to more applause. What's even more exciting is that we've found over a dozen planets that are roughly the same size as Earth and just close enough to their home to star to support liquid water. Where there's water, there's life. We call this the Goldilocks Zone. Dr. Lowell walked to the side of the auditorium. Of course the planets are so far away that we'll never visit them. My team has been researching these Goldilocks planets for a few years, and this planetarium experience is the culmination of our work. For the first time ever, we will be using state-of-the-art hologram technology to show you these distant worlds. Ladies and gentlemen of Mountain View, let's explore, Dr. Lowell said. The lights blinked out. Neil laid his head back as the show began. The projector flashed on and millions of holographic stars spilled over the audience. A large red ball of fire grew larger, as if the crowd approached it on a rocket ship. Dr. Lowell's voice spilled from the speakers. Welcome to Proxima Centauri, the closest star to Earth. His pre-recorded voice described the many planets that orbited Proxima Centauri. Neil looked down at his father, standing at the front of the auditorium. Dr. Lowell stood beside him. Neil's father whispered something into Dr. Lowell's ear, and they exited the auditorium, the light from the open door silhouetting them as they left. Neil's attention lingered at the now dark exit. Something just didn't sit right about them leaving. Marie tapped Neil's shoulder so she could grab some of his red vines, and his focus went back to the planetarium experience. When the show ended, Neil still had an uneasy feeling, which was worsened when old Miss Herschel, the museum docent, walked to the front of the audience. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Dr. Lowell was called out on an emergency, and we will have to postpone the autograph ceremony, she said to a round of boos. She shrugged. Neil Webb, please meet me at the front of the auditorium. Thank you. Neil looked at Marie and they walked down the staircase, once most of the audience had left. Miss Herschel stood against the wall of the auditorium, waiting for him. Neil thought she looked concerned. It was the oddest thing. Your father called me in the middle of the show from his cell phone, and he said that Dr. Lowell had an emergency and that you need to wait for your father in his office. Do you know where it is? Miss Herschel asked. Neil nodded. He and Marie headed out the exit and down a brightly lit hallway. Neil pointed to a door that read, Administration. The office is dark, but thousands of glow-in-the-dark stars glowed on the walls and ceiling. Neil pushed a button on the wall, and the lights came to life. Posters of the greatest scientists ran along the length of the wall. The first was the iconic photo of Albert Einstein sticking his tongue out. There were posters of Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. There was a long bookshelf crammed with science novels by Hawking, Bill Nye the Science Guy, and Michio Kaku. He had numerous science books and journals, and there were dozens of novels by Arthur C. Clarke, Gene Roddenberry, Michael Crichton, and Stephen King. Inside the door was a globe of Mars next to a pair of leather chairs that sat in front of an oak desk. On the desk was a sleek laptop and a piece of notebook paper. Neil moved to the desk and saw his name written on top of the paper. He picked up the paper, unfolded it, and read aloud, Neil, had to run. Meet me at the lab. Dad. Your dad has a lab, Marie asked? Yeah, nobody knows about it. My grandpa Al bought it a while back, Neil told her. Why does your dad want you to meet him at his lab? Marie asked. We're supposed to go fishing later. Maybe that's it, Neil said. Why don't you come to the lab with me? It's really cool. We can drop you off at home on our way out of town. Let's roll, Marie said. Neil and Marie jumped on their bikes and pedaled fiercely past a line of cars on their way out of the parking lot and onto the highway. They rode north through Mountain View and several miles down the highway. They stopped at a crossroad then turned left down a dirt road that led them past wide open fields, grazing cows, and the occasional antelope. 
They reached a signpost that read, Rancho Costa Plenty. Neil Marie stopped at the post and turned their bikes down the driveway. They pedaled down a curved drive along a pair of buildings. There was a large ranch on the right and an identical, albeit smaller, ranch on the left. In between the two buildings was an immaculate view of tan-colored fields bordered by snow-covered peaks and a small lake. The ranches had the same light wood siding and green shingles. Both buildings had the same red door. Neil Marie dropped their bikes and ran to the larger ranch. They stopped in front of a thick oak door painted red. Next to the door was a keypad. Neil hit a series of numbers and then scanned his right index finger on the keypad. The locks of the door disengaged. Neil turned a silver doorknob and opened the door. The room was dark, lit only by glowing green screensavers coming from several large computer screens that sat on the top of a pair of desks. There was blinking computer servers set throughout the large room. On the other side of the lab sat a large, flat-screen television that had been placed above a fireplace and in front of a leather couch. Neil took two steps into the lab and the lights blinked on. Two sets of wooden steps led upstairs where there were three rooms with their doors closed. In the corner upstairs was a cannon-like black telescope. It was attached to a rotating platform and there were thick wires that led from the telescope to a computer. Above the telescope was a covered dome. There were four cylindrical tubes at each corner of the platform. Marita pointed towards the telescope apparatus. What are those for? she asked. At night, the roof opens and the telescope lifts out. The computer controls the platform, so the telescope rotates with the Earth, Neil said. Pretty cool, dude, Marie said. They moved toward the pair of desks. The first desk was cluttered with books and papers. Neil picked up a silver frame containing an old, faded photograph of a young woman in horn glasses and a Betty Rubble-type hairdo. This is my grandma Sally, Neil said, holding the picture up to Marie so she could see. Marie walked around to the other desk and then plopped down into a rolling leather chair. When she did, a blue laser shot out of a computer screen and was followed by a loud buzz. The voice of Gandalf howled from the computer speakers, You shall not pass. The voice startled Marie. Neil whipped his head toward her. What'd you do? he asked her. Dude, I'm exhausted. All I did was sit down and the computer shot me with a laser and yelled at me, Marie replied in a snarky voice. Neil motioned for Marie to get out of the chair and he sat down behind her. The laser shot from the computer again. This time they were presented with Flavor Flav yelling, Yeah, boy! Neil's father appeared on the computer screen and a video message began to play. So a couple things I wanted to point out about Chapter 3. Uh, this is the first time that we get to hear Dr. Lowell speak. Uh, he is based off of Neil deGrasse Tyson, but uh, maybe if Neil deGrasse Tyson was you know, 20 years younger. Um, so whenever you hear Dr. Lowell speak, think Neil deGrasse Tyson in Donald Glover's body. The Wu-Ting shirt that is referenced in the book is an actual shirt that I wear. I also have a Slayer t-shirt, but instead of Slayer, it says Sagan. They're amongst my favorite shirts to wear. The Planetarium Show in Mountain View is an enormous event. Dr. Lowell is the most famous scientist in the entire world, and Mountain View is just a blip on the map. So having Dr. Lowell premiere his new Planetarium Show was a huge event. There were a couple of things I wanted to set up during the Planetarium Show. First and foremost, Neil sees his father and Dr. Lowell leave out of the exit, and Neil thinks it's a little strange. We know now that Neil's father and Dr. Lowell left for their journey to Verilam. The next thing I wanted to set up was the idea that there were millions and millions of stars out there, and all of them had planets orbiting them. I also wanted to use the planetarium show itself. The Kepler telescope that I described in my book was a real telescope that was sent up into space for the sole purpose of finding exoplanets, or planets that are in outer space. 
before it died about a year ago, it found thousands of planets. And scientists recently discovered a system of planets that orbited the star referenced in the planetarium scene, Alpha Centauri, which is the closest star system to us, being only four light years away. Chapter 4 Neil, Sun, what I have to tell you may seem unbelievable, but is 100% true. Five years ago, your grandfather and I made an incredible discovery. We discovered that wormholes appear and disappear all around us, millions of times a day. But they are too fast and unstable, so nobody has ever detected them. We theorized that if we could hone in on its energy signature, we could not only detect them, but also slow them down enough to travel through. We were right, Neil's dad said. He stopped speaking and grabbed a glass of water from off screen. He took a quick sip and continued, We were able to track one particular wormhole to its origination point on the opposite side of the universe, and all the worlds attached to it. After much deliberation, I decided that I needed to go through the wormhole. The first world I came across was one of extraordinary beauty, a world of jungles. Five years earlier, Simia. Stephen wore a NASA spacesuit as he exited the wormhole onto an enormous palm frond. The palms were so thick and interwoven that he could not see below the canopy itself. The linked palms supported Stephen's weight and it provided a trail for him to walk on. He swiped the screen of his wormhole device. Nitrogen, 70%. Oxygen, 25%, and traces of carbon dioxide and methane. Analysis shows the atmosphere to be suitable for breathing freely, said the voice in Stephen's helmet, an AI program named Ralph. Stephen unlocked his helmet with a hiss, pulled it off, and put it on the ground. The heat and the humidity of the jungle hit him at once. He threw off the heavy suit and was left wearing only his white flight suit. Stephen had to wait nearly an entire Earth day on this jungle world until his device had enough power to initiate another wormhole. The noise of the planet was deafening. Screeches of unknown beasts came from below. Something howled deeply to the east, and a shrill hooting sound came from Stephen's left. It was similar to the hoot of owls on Earth, but much deeper and louder. Stephen turned around in circles, trying to glimpse an alien beast and hoping it wouldn't be too big. A rustling sound came from Stephen's left. He snapped his head towards the sound, but nothing was there. He tried to catch any sign of movement, but couldn't see far. Stephen attached a camouflage pup tent to a giant palm frond, where he sat inside, too afraid to sleep. He dozed off and was immediately awakened by the sound of scuttling from behind his tent. Stephen heard more rustling. This time it came from straight ahead. He turned his head and caught a dark blur out of the corner of his eye. He snapped his head back and saw a small shadow on the ground in front of him. Then he heard the howling again, this time from straight above. He craned his neck up towards the sky. He saw his creatures covered in green fur falling to the surface and land ten feet in front of him. Stephen stared in fear and disbelief. Standing before him was a six-foot-tall creature that resembled an eight but had four eyes spanning its forehead. It stood on two thick legs and it had a shock of silver hair that framed its face like a Fu Manchu mustache. Stephen dropped to one knee. He did so to protect his head and to show the creature that he was not a threat. He peeked up and saw the creature walking toward him. Stephen saw a long tail that flickered behind the creature. He looked back towards the ground when two massive, hairy feet stepped in front of him. Stephen looked straight up. The creature put a strong, leathery hand on his shoulder and gave him a sign to stand up. Stephen saw in the creature's eye that it meant him no harm. Instead, he saw curiosity and empathy. The creature turned and walked along a path in the canopy. It signaled for Stephen to follow him. Stephen hesitated, and the creature again made the gesture to follow. The device is fully recharged and ready to initiate wormhole, Ralph said. The creature turned around and started walking again. 
Steven ran his fingers over the screen of his device and a blue laser shot from it. The wormhole singularity expanded in front of him. The creature turned its head in time to see Steven walk through the wormhole and disappear. Steven crumbled to the floor inside of his lab. His father, Albert, ran to him. His father wore a tie-dyed shirt, cowboy boots, and sported a long silver ponytail. Steven laid on the ground in his dirty, sweat-drenched flight suit. Present day, Mountain View. Neil and Marie continued to watch his father's video message. I went back day after day, but the creature never returned, Neil's dad said. Each time I went through the wormhole, I stayed for longer and longer periods of time. I studied the vegetation, and I listened to its sounds. I observed its creatures, and I felt its warm rains. Neil's dad took another drink of water and continued. After months of visiting the planet, in Earth time, my friend finally came back. His name is Yima, and he's from a race of beings called the Waichu. Yima brought me to a city and introduced me to the Waichu Grand Council. I spent nearly two years in total visiting this planet. Your grandfather and I developed a software that could translate any language in real time. With that tech, I was able to learn a great deal about Simia. Eventually it came time to move on and I decided to continue my journey to the other worlds attached to the wormhole path. Over the next few years, I visited and lived on five different planets, all unique and all of them habitable. I discovered that the wormhole taking me to these worlds was created by an extremely advanced civilization named the Tiva on the planet Verilam, located on the other side of the universe. When I came back, I released all of my research and only one person believed my story, my old friend from college, Dr. Lowell. I received an urgent message from the Tiva and they invited me to return to their planet. That's when I contacted Dr. Lowell and invited him to head to the Verilam with me. Our plan was to leave in the middle of the show and make our way from my office. From there, we were to open the wormhole and travel to Verilam, retrieve the information, and return. We would return to the show, and at the end of it, we would release the TV information to the world, Neil's dad said. Marie leaned over and hit the pause button on Neil's keyboard. Then why aren't they here, she asked. Neil shrugged and pressed play. The reason you're watching this video means that something has gone wrong on my mission. This message is to play only if my wormhole device is irreparably damaged. Neil... I need you to track our location and rescue us or travel on to Verilam. There you receive all the answers to the universe and that knowledge is too valuable to lose. Either way, I know asking you to do this is a lot, but we need your help. I left a spare wormhole device in my tackle box at home. I love you, son. I believe in you, his dad said. He reached out to the keyboard and the video ended. Your family's weird, dude, Marie said. Neil stared blankly at the computer screen. Marie snapped her fingers and caught his attention. We have to go, he said. Nope, Marie said back. I like your dad and all, but he's asking us to do grown-up stuff, and we're only prepubescent kids. Well, you don't have to go with me, Neil said. Are you kidding? You're not allowed to go across the universe without me, said Marie. So, are you in? Neil asked, confused. I guess. I mean, for real, how many times in your lifetime can you change the history of your own species, Marie asked. They ran out of the lab, hopped on their bikes, and headed back to Neil's house. They rode along the highway until they reached Mountain View in his house. There, they rolled to a stop on his lawn and jumped off their bikes. The two of them ran through the house into the dark garage. There was a single beam of sunlight coming through the side window. Particles of dust floated in the sunlight. Against the back of the garage was his dad's workbench. Sitting on the bench was the old, dented tackle box covered with tattered stickers. Neil hustled to the workbench. He slid his heads down the sides of the metal tackle box and unclasped the latch. The wood squeaked when it opened. 
He looked into the box and at first he didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. There were a pair of pliers and a roll of fishing line. Neil lifted off the top of the tray and in the bottom of the tackle box was a device that resembled a small iPad attached to an armband. Neil picked up the device and the screen came to life. A blue laser scanned his face and a familiar voice accepted the scan. Yeah, boy, screamed Flavor Flav. The screen came to life and his dad was once again staring back at Neil. This is one of the three devices your grandfather and I built. I don't have long to tell you how to use it, but I've left you several videos on how it works. To activate it, choose your destination to name the laser away from you. You will see the singularity open. When it's big enough, stabilize the wormhole. Then all you have to do is walk through it, his dad said. The first planet you'll come upon is a world I call Simia. It's a rainforest moon of the planet Kepler-22b, but the Simians call it Halion. When you get there, follow the map I loaded on the device and find Yima. Yima will take you to the Waichu Grand Council, and there you'll meet Maya. Show her the video I've recorded for them. Last, do not lose or break this device. You don't want to become stranded somewhere in the universe with no way to get home. I've packed you some essential supplies in my backpack. There is so much at stake here. We are about to change the human race. I love you. Be careful. Last chance to back out, Neil said. Let's roll before I lose my nerve, Marie said. Full disclosure, I'm pretty scared, said Neil. I got your back, dude, Marie said as she pulled Neil to a firm hug. Neil slipped the wormhole device onto his arms. His finger ran across the screen. A giant menu popped up. The first line on the screen read, Direct Wormhole. The second line read, Initiate. The third line read, Stabilize. Neil looked at Marie for approval. Are we doing this? Neil asked. Marie nodded. Neil pressed Direct Wormhole, and five pictures came up on the screen. The first picture was a green world with the word Simia underneath. The next picture was a blue world with silver rings named Amphibios. The third planet was a brown world with a giant red slash stretching from North Pole to its South Pole. It was Silosis. Next was an icy planet scored with mountains and canyons named Glaces. The last planet, Verlam, was the only one that most resembled Earth. The planet had wispy white clouds with vast continents surrounded by azure oceans. Half of the planet was lit by a white sun, and the other half was shrouded in darkness. Within the darkness, billions of city lights covered the surface. Neil selected the photo simia and tapped the word, Initiate. When he did, a blue laser shot from the device. The word stabilized pulsed. Neil tapped the screen and a timer started counting down from 30 seconds. Neil grabbed Marie's hand. They investigated the glowing, oblong singularity and saw a world covered in rainforest. In unison, they stepped through the singularity and in one step they left Earth and arrived on the jungle world. Neil stared back to where they came from. In the midst of the jungle was his garage floating inside the singularity. He took a deep breath and watched the wormhole collapse. This chapter is important because, first of all, I set up the rules for the wormhole device. The wormhole is man-made, it's not a naturally occurring object, and along the path of the wormhole are the planets that we will travel through in the race through space. I also wanted to establish the rules of the wormhole device itself. The wormhole device needs an enormous amount of energy to operate, so every time it's used, it requires at least 24 hours of sunlight in order to recharge it. If there is less sunlight, it'll take longer to recharge, and if they're in an environment where there is more energy available, then the device will charge faster. I also wanted to use more backstory in this chapter. The backstory was used here to explain how Steven used the wormholes to travel from planet to planet. Finally, I had to set up what was to be known as the race to space. Neil and Marie were forced to make a quick decision, the decision on whether or not 
to use the wormhole device to go and try to find Neil's father. Neil decides that his father is in desperate need of help, and he makes the decision to go, whether Marie goes or not. Marie, being Neil's best friend, understands that he can't go anywhere without her, and she needs to be there to protect him. This is the last time that Neil and Marie live in an innocent world. The moment they step through Singularity, they will meet alien creatures on planets all over the universe, and they will be in constant danger. And there you have it, chapters 1 through 4 of The Race Through Space. I hope you had a good time, and thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week as I talk more about how Kevin Smith inspired me to write my book, and I give more insights until I crafted The Race Through Space story. I want to thank you so much for listening, and the next time you're out at night, I bid you to look up at the stars. Good night. This has been a Truckee Pacific production. For sponsorship inquiries and comments, go to the Mile High Podcast at gmail.com.